Please to Joshua, Joshua chapter 5. For those of you who know me well enough, you know that I almost have a great fascination about theophanies in the Bible, and I'm going to use that opportunity this morning. Joshua chapter 5 and verse 13. Three verses, beginning to read at verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his broad sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. We'll end our reading there, just at the end of the chapter. I'm always a great believer in actually learning things by repetition. That's probably why someone who's so bad at maths like me, eventually ended up learning something. But if you're wondering this morning what a theophany is, a theophany is, is basically this visible manifestation to humankind of God. And it's only three short verses, but there's a wealth of stuff in these three short verses. And these verses can tell us so, so much. The Bible very often is important, not only for what it tells us, but it's also very important for what it doesn't actually tell us. And we're going to try right now, just kind of fill in all of these blanks just as safely as we possibly can. But before we do so, it's good if we can actually remember this repeated instruction, this refrain that happens just before the passage begins. What is the refrain here? It's be strong, be courageous. Be strong, be courageous. In chapter 1, if you look back at it, it's actually repeated four times. Joshua is told, be strong, be courageous. It's this, as I said, it's just this constant refrain. And that's advice right now, which is going to come in very, very useful. Verse 13 that we actually began to read here, it says, When Joshua was by Jericho. Now the truth is, we don't actually know when this had actually taken place. We don't know if this was in daylight, we don't know if it was early in the morning or in the evening or whatever. All we know for certain is that Joshua was by Jericho. We know the Jordan River has been crossed and the possession of the land is just now about to take place. But we have a great advantage and the advantage for us is that we know what happens in the book of Joshua. We know how the story eventually pans out. We know that the city of Jericho had to be marched around seven times. We know that the walls of Jericho fell just exactly as God instructed. However, Joshua didn't actually know that. And what we have here is Joshua entering the promised land, knowing that it has to be possessed. And Joshua is basically doing what any man or any individual or any soldier would do. He's just basically, he's casing out the joint. He's having a little reconnoiter. And no doubt he's probably sort of trying to evaluate all of these strategies in his head as to just what's going to happen here. What must he do as this leader of the people to actually conquer this land? 
And the scripture says he lifted up his eyes. In other words, he'd been taken completely by surprise. Here he is in enemy territory, in the vicinity of Jericho, and there's a man suddenly standing before him with his sword unsheathed. Now, Joshua's quite a savvy guy, but we're left wondering how he has been just taken by surprise quite so easily and quite so quickly. It's almost like this man has just kind of appeared right out of thin air. And what does the scripture say? It says, standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. Now it's important here to remember that this phrase, drawn sword, it's actually used only three times in all of scripture. And each time that it occurs, it always denotes the angel of the Lord. No exception, it always denotes the angel of the Lord. Whenever King David actually decided that he was going to have a census and number the people, we all know what happened. It incurred God's wrath. And in First Chronicles chapter 21, verse 16, it reads, And David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. And when we think about that, we think also of Balaam's donkey. Balaam the false prophet, his donkey ended up speaking to him. In Numbers chapter 22 and verse 23, his donkey saw the angel of the Lord, but refused to agitate Balaam any further. And verse 22 it reads, Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. Hopefully you get this picking out the drawn sword. It's always denoting the angel of the Lord. So we, have, we know here right now that something major is just about to develop. We know that something is just major, just about to happen. And we know from the description right now just what to expect. However, Joshua didn't. Therefore, Joshua basically, he, he has to ask. And he says, it doesn't just say that he asked. It says, Joshua went to him and asked, are you for us or for our adversaries? And there's almost this kind of sense here in which Joshua is asking God, look God, you know, whose side are you on here? And it's easy for us to actually look at this and almost kind of sneer and smile at someone actually having the cheek and the audacity to say to God, you know, whose side are you on here? But I'm sure, for all honest, there have been many times where we've wrestled with things in prayer, perhaps our health, our job, and at times we're almost perhaps kind of thinking the same thing. God, whose side are you on here? That at times can actually be our own thought processes. And in a similar vein, I know of churches, and what's actually written even on the outside of the church is Christ for Ulster. I know of chorus books, and what's actually written in the chorus book is Christ for Ulster. Now, my point here, and the reason why I'm saying this is, for me, it's not really Christ for Ulster, it's rather Ulster for Christ. You see, the actual arrangement here is all wrong. It's the people who should be obedient and following God, not God following the people. It's almost as if God is in some way a man's debtor. God is no man's debtor. And therefore, the real question is not God, who said are you one, but rather are you, as an individual, on God's side? 
And it's interesting how the actual answer comes back. It says, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Certainly there aren't any kind of loyalties here to Canaan, the enemies. But while God is a loving, covenant-keeping God to Israel, it's not so much whether God is for Israel that is important, but rather Israel is really for God. And it's notable that the man, he doesn't so much address himself as the commander of the army of the Lord, but rather that he says, now have I come. And also all of a sudden the light, it suddenly dawns on Joshua, and this realisation takes place, and Joshua falls to the ground and worships. And what really hits home is that he must, he must be on God's side in reverence. Now obviously if this commander of the Lord's army had been just some kind of messenger here, then this messenger could never really have permitted this worship and, and the kind of worship that Joshua is now giving him. So it's no surprise that when he actually addresses the person, he calls him Lord. He states, what does my Lord say to his servant? So Joshua clearly recognizes him as Lord, and Joshua clearly recognizes himself as servant. So let's look at all the evidence right now. On balance, if, if you were the members of the jury, and if I was standing here right now, like a barrister, and I'm, I'm kind of weighing up my whole argument here, let's sum up all of the evidence. First piece of evidence is the person clearly states he's the commander of the Lord's army. Secondly, Joshua worships him. The commander of the Lord's army receives this worship, and that's something that no angel would ever have done. Then Joshua calls and recognizes him, recognizes him as Lord. And finally, just as Moses is instructed, Joshua is also instructed to take his sandals from off his feet to the place we are standing is holy. So let's gather all the evidence together. On strength of all the evidence, this person standing in front of Joshua right now is God himself. This is Joshua's burning bush experience. This is the reconfirmation that Joshua is now Moses' natural successor. And the use of this term holy ground here, this is a sure sign that God is present and that God is speaking. Why? Because only God's holy presence is the thing that will actually be able to sanctify the space around. So surrounded by the holy presence, Joshua wisely removes his sandals in adoration and he waits the divine voice and further instruction. God speaks unto Joshua what does all of this now mean for us today? Well, in order for us to understand this fully and completely, let's just look at some of the other appearances of the Lord. Back in Genesis chapter 18, the Lord appears to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre. And the scripture says that three men appeared. Now we know that two of the men were the angels. And the other was actually the Lord himself. And we know how that story pans out because the two angels there later arrive at Sodom. And it's God himself who is actually eating and talking with Abraham. Now move that forward a good deal more in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 32 we have Jacob. And Jacob wrestles with God in chapter 32. And 20, verse 24 of that it reads, And Jacob was left alone. 
and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And this man eventually puts Jacob's hip out of joint. Now, is there a connection here that we can see? Can we see a connection? To Abraham, Abraham was basically something of a pilgrim. And the Lord meets him as a fellow traveller. And he shares a meal with him. Jacob, well, you know yourself what kind of man, what kind of character Jacob actually was. As far as to say, Jacob was a man who was always pulling moves. He was a schemer. He was slightly flippant. If Jacob was around today, he would say, he's a fly boy, that guy. If you were buying a second-hand car, you probably wouldn't want to buy a second-hand car from Jacob. But how did God come to him? God came to him as a wrestler to bring him to this place of submission. And whenever Joshua, the warrior, who was encouraged and told to be courageous and have faith, whenever uh, God actually meets him as captain of the Lord's armies with his drawn sword, okay, to encourage him to have that strength, to have that faith and courage. So I hope you can begin to see a little bit of a pattern here to Abraham the pilgrim. God actually meets him as a traveller and he meets him as a pilgrim. And to Jacob this schemer, to this guy who's always pulling moves, God meets him as a wrestler to bring him to this place of submission where he would actually have to hand over control. And now with Joshua, as someone who's going to go in and to do battle and to take possession, the Lord meets him as the commander of the Lord's armies. So what's my, what is my actual point here? My point is, whenever God actually meets us, he meets us in the way that we need him. And in exactly the way that God needs us. That's exactly how God meets with us, how God deals with us. The Abraham pilgrim, it might have been quite a pleasant experience. To Jacob, who was the deceiver, it would have been quite an unpleasant experience. Because submission and control is going to have to be given over. And to Joshua, the commander, the leader, it would have required faith. It would have required courage. Now, allow me just to make us a little bit more pointed this morning. If the Lord was, let me return this back to you. If the Lord was actually going to meet you in, this morning, what way would God actually meet you? Would it be in a friendly manner, like Abraham? Would it be in a way that demanded courage and faith, like Joshua, for all of the way that lay ahead? Or would it be in some kind of unpleasant experience where God would be wrestling with you in order to get your submission and your control? Because really how we actually react to this, this is what determines our future. And only you actually know what the answer is. I did say it was very important how God addressed Joshua here when he said, Now have I come. What, what, what do I mean here? Why should this actually happen now? Let me change direction here a little bit on this. Now have I come. Why does this actually happen here at this point in time? If you care just to flick back just several pages, you would see in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 5 it reads, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. 
Now, under the circumstances that Joshua is now in currently, could any man have been faithful? Question mark. But the knowledge, it's actually here, it's given to him that the Lord would be with him just wherever he was going to go. On the one hand, we have the walls of Jericho. They seem impregnable. On the other hand, no man's going to be able to stand before Joshua all the days of his life. Make no mistake, the conquering of the land is a very, very great undertaking. Joshua and Caleb, they've been there 40 years earlier. They're one of the 12 spies that were sent out to view and spy out the land. And you know, you all know what happened whenever they, they heard the bad report of the, of the 10 spies. The, the report actually scares the people. And they all want to find and choose this new leader to take them back to Egypt. But it was Joshua who encouraged the people not to fear. It is Joshua who says, the Lord is with us. And it is Joshua who says, do not fear them. And now the time comes for the people to take the land. Forty years later, they're being led by Joshua. And it almost seems like right now things have completely came full circle here. The commander of the Lord's army is before Joshua. And he's ready to lead. We can say the commander of the Lord's army appearing right now. It was basically just a fulfillment of that promise that God had earlier given to Moses. If you care, just to flick back, please, to Exodus chapter 23. And it's just one verse. Exodus chapter 23. And verse 20. Exodus chapter 23 and verse 20 reads, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. And just in case you actually lose sight or underestimate that, let me remind you of Second Kings, verse 19. I alluded to this briefly on Thursday evening. The Assyrians right then, were they were a major kind of power play in the world at that time, and they'd received they were given these messages to King Hezekiah and Hezekiah was told that his God would be of absolutely no help to him whatsoever. However, the prophet Isaiah sent a message to King Hezekiah telling him that they would not shoot an arrow at the city and they were not to be worried at all. And we all know what happened there. What happened that night? An angel of the Lord went out that night and destroyed 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers. Now, if an angel of the Lord can wipe away this army of 185,000 soldiers, what can the commander of the Lord's army actually do? Remember what Paul said in Romans, if God be for us, who can be against us? So why does the commander of the Lord's army now come? Why does he state to Joshua, now have I come? Because as I mentioned earlier, this is basically the fulfillment of that promise that God gave to Moses, Behold, I send my angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have chosen. As I said, 40 years have elapsed and what Joshua is receiving right now is this visible fulfillment of that promise which was made way back then. Joshua had led the people but more importantly, the Lord was now already going before him just as, I, just as he promised, now have I come. So, what way has Joshua actually readied himself for this battle that lay ahead? 
Back in chapter 3, in verse 5, Joshua was actually the one who implored the people to consecrate themselves. God told them, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow God is going to do great works amongst you. And even though Joshua and Caleb, they had spied out the land and they had already been there, they were not immune. They also had to consecrate themselves. It's like a reminder here of Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, allow me just to digress a little bit here once again, give you an illustration. It's a little bit like a quiz question. If I were to ask you this morning, who was the greatest Olympian who ever lived? Uh, the greatest Olympian who ever lived was somebody, somebody that was just shut it out. I see lots of blank faces. Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps, the greatest Olympian who ever lived, 23 gold medals, 23 gold medals. It sounds incredibly hard to believe. Imagine wearing one of those, they'd be down your shoulders, across your arms. It's said that whenever Michael Phelps trained, he actually got up at 6 a.m. and he was in the water by 7. And he trained for two hours. Then he actually got out of the pool when he did that. He went to the gym and he pushed weights for another few hours. When that was finished, he was back into the pool again for another two hours. That was his life each and every single day. You could say that Michael Phelps was possibly almost designed to be a swimmer. Michael Phelps' actual arm span is actually, from fingertip to fingertip, it's actually more than his actual height. He's completely out of proportion. But by way of training, that was his life for so long. As I said, that was his life for several years. He never took a day off. He never had a rest day. For five long years, that's what he did. But during the Beijing Olympics, there was a little bit of controversy. Because what separated him from his competitor was 0.01 of a second. And his competitor was a Serbian swimmer. And he actually said, look, I feel I really hit the touch pad just before Michael Phelps. So, you can imagine the controversy that ensued. They had to analyse it and they took it to the judges and they looked at all of the footage which they could get. And so for quite some time that footage was actually analysed at 10,000 of a second apart. And as I said, the Serbian swimmer said, look, I hit that touchpad first. But when they analysed it, they said, look, it was actually right. The Serbian swimmer had hit the touchpad first, but Michael Phelps actually hit it with much greater force. Therefore, his was the one which actually registered first. Now, let me give you this question now back to you. At what point was Michael Phelps sure that the medal was actually his? Was he sure that the medal was his whenever he actually really thumped the touchpad with greater force? Or when he actually stood on the podium when he heard the national, his national anthem and whenever the medal was given to him? Is that the point when he was sure that the gold medal was actually his? No, the point whenever Michael Phelps was sure that the gold medal was actually his was whenever he got up at 6 a.m. every single morning, was into the water for the two hours, the gym, back in the water, and he did that for five years without a single day of rest. He trained so hard. That was the point whenever Michael Phelps knew that the gold medal was really his. We know that the commander of the Lord's Army's arrival was a fulfillment of Exodus chapter 23. 
But we could also say, at what point was it more likely that Joshua was going to meet the commander of the Lord's army? They were more likely to meet the commander of the Lord's army because they had actually consecrated themselves. Joshua had prepared the way. Joshua was battle ready. Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord is going to do a great work amongst you. That was the point when when Joshua was much more certain that he was actually going to meet where he had actually prepared himself to meet. Following that, the battle was always going to be the Lord's. As I say, Joshua had consecrated himself and as the scripture says, now have I come. And now that that preparation had really kind of yielded results, he could truly say, what does my Lord say to his servants? I mentioned earlier the ways in which God came in theophanies and to various men. I said to Abraham, to Jacob, to Joshua. I said to Abraham, it was quite a welcoming, pleasant kind of pilgrim experience. And to Jacob, it was a way that really required much more yielding and submission. And for Joshua, it was a way that would really require more faith and much more courage. But let us not only say, what does my Lord say to his servant for ourselves? But let us also remember what the scripture says, according to your faith, be it unto you. Each of us individually, we often set our own course for how the Lord meets with us. But in that regard, it's always entirely up to you. Leave that with you. Amen. I'm going to ask Karen and Emma if they can just lead us in praise once again, please.